Welcome to the Peds Ethics Podcast, where we talk to leaders in pediatric bioethics about a hot topic or current controversy. Here's your host, John Lantos, from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Hi, welcome back. This is John Lantos from Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, home of Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs, coming to you with our Pediatric Ethics Podcast, a series that we do with interesting authors who write about interesting issues in pediatric bioethics. Today, we're thrilled to have Sarah D. Gregorio with us. Sarah is the author of a book that just came out this week called Early, An Intimate History of Premature Birth and What It Teaches Us About Being Human. It's published by Harper. It's available on Amazon, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this book. You are not a doctor. You are not a bioethicist. How did you come to write a book about neonatal intensive care and premature birth? That's right. I am definitely not a doctor, not a bioethicist, but very, very grateful to be here on your podcast and speaking to you today. I came to this topic, actually, because my daughter was born at 28 weeks, and I, in the process of of our NICU stay and everything that came after it, realized that I had a lot of questions about how we have come to a moment in time when a baby like my daughter who was born as a result of intrauterine growth restriction, so she was a little bit smaller than average. She weighed 840 grams at birth and was um, at first in um, perhaps not good condition when she was born but quickly did very well. I came to realize that babies like her are actually quite likely to do well now. Mm-hmm. And from a parental point of view, it had seemed quite acute and very bad. And of course, sure. it's not a good outcome. But I was very curious about how we have arrived in this moment, um, what it means that um, babies like my daughter are so overwhelmingly likely to survive and to do well. And in the process of that, I also had cause to think about the fact that I myself had been born prematurely. What? My grandfather was born prematurely. And so it was this thread. How premature were you? I actually don't know exactly. I believe I was 32 weeks. Um, both of my parents passed away relatively young, and I didn't have a chance to ask them about the details. Okay. I know that I was born very jaundiced and was brought to um, women and infants in Providence and given a, um, an exchange transfusion. Okay. So I think that my parents, you know must have had a lot of pain around that that we actually never spoke about. And when you were, uh, when your daughter was in the NICU, were there specific things that happened that made you worry or wonder or surprised you? I think at first the thing that really surprised me and scared me was just the way that she looked after giving birth quite suddenly in an emergency C-section to see a baby who is you know, one pound, 13 ounces. She was on a ventilator at first and on TPN. And I had never seen a baby that looked like that. Right. I had, our, our NICU was an open ward. And so I was also sort of sitting next to her, in, her incubator, but within arm's reach of, you know, three other incubators with babies in a similar situation. It was very overwhelming. It was like I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of parents speak to this, this sort of sense of being dropped into another planet with these human beings of a sort that you have never seen or imagined before. And it felt very powerful when I read, actually, parts of um, the Lazarus case. It was the first time that I felt expressed to me 
the way that I had felt, not only as a parent being afraid for my daughter, but also the sense of like, where are we? What are we doing here? This is this place is so powerful. Yeah. And so, you know, and there were there were things about her stay in general. We were very lucky. She had a she had a relatively good stay. We were there for two months. At first, she continued to lose weight, and that was a source of worry, it seemed, for the clinicians. But there were things that were very routine about the NICU experience that I found terrifying and completely insane. Like Like bradycardia, where it's like, oh, don't worry, that's normal. Your baby's heart will sort of slow to a stop and will kind of come over and be like, hmm, can she handle this on her own? No, okay, we're going to just pat her chest now and get her heart going. Flick her feet, tickle (laughs) her toes. And, you know... As a parent, yeah. you know, that's that's crazy. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the nurses are usually pretty casual. Yep. 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 Your baby's heart started coming to a stop. We're going to yeah, see how this see goes this. now. This happens. Mira's your daughter's yep, name? Yep, Mira. And uh, she was in the NICU for how long? For two months. Two months. And did she go home on medication or oxygen? Nope. She didn't go home on oxygen. Um, she... We, when we, it was an interesting experience going home. I, I struggle with anxiety in general, and so this, this experience brought that out a bit. A bit? Uh, yeah, a bit. <laughs> um, when we went home, we were very lucky. She wasn't on oxygen. Um, she was able to, to eat by mouth. We did discover subsequently that um, some of the challenges she was having was because she has hypotonia. And so that's a challenge that has followed her. She's five now. Um, She gets occupational and physical therapy for that. But it's a very minor issue. You know, it's really something that we've been able to manage with therapies. And subsequently, she was also diagnosed with asthma. Although at the time, um, it took us a while to figure that out. So many parents who have had a baby in the NICU, once they get home, never want to think about NICUs again. And instead, you decided to write a book about them. (laughs) (laughs) Why why, why did you do that? (laughs) I think I wanted to... I wanted to maybe reassert some control over the situation. Um, I had felt so confused and so very, very out of control of what was happening. Mm. I felt that there was a lot of context happening that I didn't understand. I felt that I was sort of dropped into a coloring book and it was all blank and I knew that there must be all this context around and I didn't know any of it, Mm -hmm. which I found very scary. And it took me a while to want to revisit it. It maybe took me about eight months to sort of think like, is this something that I could research and come to understand better? You're a writer. I'm a writer. Journalist. A journalist, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think I, I wanted I wanted from the very beginning to understand better, but my attempts to my attempts to understand better while we were in the NICU were often um, unsuccessful. Not not necessarily because the clinicians didn't want to explain, but also because I was having a hard time taking in information. A lot of parents say the way you think and your babies in the NICU is wildly different than the way you think <laughs> the rest of your life. It's yeah. so emotionally overwhelming. Yeah. Just short circuits. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So how did you decide to go about doing this research? Where did you start? I started by, I had written an essay um, about my experience and then realized that there were these that that really what my questions were were 
generally, how did we get here Mm -hmm. and what does it mean? And so um, I started sort of looking at as far back as I could find. I just, I looked at the American Academy of Pediatrics um, interviews with pioneers of neonatology. I tried to call up as many of them as I could find. And I wanted to understand where all this technology came from, mm-hmm. who who came up with it. Yep. And um, people were, were, in general, very open to speaking with me about it. Once I started asking questions, more questions suggested themselves, and I found myself going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole, and I really could have researched this book for the rest of my life, probably. So tell us about <laughs> some of the uh, more interesting people you met and what those discussions were like. So... I went to go see Dr. Maria Delavoria Papadopoulos in Philadelphia, who is an amazing person and a fantastic conversation partner. Um, I think one of my misconceptions was that, especially as a lay person, I think maybe a lot of lay people might think this, was that, oh, well, researchers must come up with an intervention, and then they test it. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, it works or it doesn't work. And if it works, then everyone starts to use it, and the outcomes get better, and then they do it again, and that's how progress works. That's really what story. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> and what was fascinating... It's not like, it's not like <laughs> 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 What was fascinating to me was to find out that it was just much more sort of lurching than that, and there, you know, the back and forth and the sort of um, disagreement about what what should be done was very interesting and had more to do with culture and values and um, all just all of our humanness than I thought it would. So, Doctor Delavoria Papadopoulos was yes. one of the pioneers, yes. one of the first yes. people to treat uh, babies with uh, positive pressure ventilation, right. mechanical ventilation. Right. Did she tell you the stories? Yes. So she study? told me she she started her training in Athens in a polio ward where she treated babies in iron lungs, and so that was her background. Um, and so she, she had some background in, in treating and um, artificial respiration. When she for got adults, for, I believe for children, it was okay. a children's polio One. ward, I okay. believe. Okay. And when she got to Toronto to the hospital for sick children, of course there were premature babies there and there was nothing really in the way of treatment for respiratory distress. And as she described it at the time, positive pressure ventilation had just become available for adults undergoing surgery. And she said, well, why can't we use this for babies? They're having trouble breathing. This is being successfully used in other contexts. Why can't we do it? And um, the people around her said, no, that's crazy. You know, it's completely untested. That would be experimenting on the babies. It's not going to work. And she just did not take no for an answer. And, you know, I think I was trying to think about how it came that she really just didn't give up. I think that she really felt like she could do more and that the babies were, that there was some kind of moral obligation she had to try these things. So they said to her, she told me, okay, you can try to intubate this baby, but you have to wait until five minutes after we declared death. So she said, okay. So she had gotten, I think it was a bird one of the early bird ventilators, and she had gotten a small tube from a friend who was a respiratory therapist. She sort of rigged it all up. She said, okay, fine. Here I am with my machine. Mm-hmm. Call me when a baby dies. So they called her when a baby died. She would wait five minutes, and then she would intubate the baby. And she had a couple instances where the baby would revive for cardio, and in, in the, the heart would start beating again. 
of course, none, those babies were too far gone. She didn't have any survivors, but she was proving to the people around her that this was technically possible. Mm-hmm. She kept doing it and doing it and doing it until finally they said, okay, at the moment of death, we'll let you do it. Mm-hmm. And so she did that until finally she had a survivor. And it was amazing to me to think about what that would be like to know that you're going to intubate this baby who has died and to know that you're, you're doing it to, to prove something and for a greater purpose, yeah. but what that would take out of you. That is the whole ethical dilemma with medical research. You try desperate things on people who are dying. You don't know if they're going to work. Sometimes they have terrible consequences and you end up harming people or prolonging their dying and other times you come up with a treatment that turns out to be beneficial and saves thousands of lives mm-hmm. takes a lot of courage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who else did you meet didn't you talk to millie stallman i did i did talk to dr another stallman. pioneer another pioneer she is 97 now and i went to the nicu that she founded Um, It was very, very wonderful to walk the halls there and have every single person say to me, oh, my God, you're going to go see Dr. Stallman. You know, they have all these amazing stories about her, about her Christmas parties where she would have, like, spiced wine spiked with grain alcohol, and then they'd go (laughs) shoot mistletoe out of the trees. And it sounded like a... Like a, a great place to work. But um, <laughs> she was amazing because she was the first person to put a baby into a miniaturized iron lung. And um, she she is quite a character. You know, she's known in Nashville as someone who left the trappings of her wealthy newspaper family behind. She was very single-minded in her devotion to mm-hmm. neonatology and did a lot of research on sheep models and kept the pregnant ewes out on the courtyard, um, the hospital courtyard. So there were lots of great stories about her. And I know she, you know, she also really pushed forward the treatment of respiratory distress. Um, And I did go see her and she, we had a short conversation, but a good conversation. Um, And she really was very much not interested in self Celebration. She yeah. said, well, someone else would have done it if I hadn't done it. I thought, well, nobody, nobody else was really doing that at that time. So then in addition to talking to these pioneers, you talk to people who are working at the sort of cutting edge of mm-hmm. innovation today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, what, do you, what, do you, what is your sense of uh, where the current controversies are in treatment? Well... I thought about this a lot, about where are the iconoclasts now? Mm -hmm. Who are the iconoclasts now? Mm -hmm. And I like to think of it less in terms of conflict because some of them are, all of them are moving in different directions. But I think they, I'm not sure that they are necessarily in conflict. For for instance, Dr. Bell in Iowa, who runs a unit there, Ed Bell, yep. He runs his unit there has made 22 and 23-week babies, very low gestational age babies, a focus of research and care. And they have reached a point where they can offer, they can recommend treatment to 22-week babies, and they have a reasonable expectation of success. I find that really amazing. And it's funny because I I actually was listening to one of Dr. Lantos's um, talks um, before I went to go to Iowa to talk to Dr. Bell, and 
one question I had was, well, how, how come? How come he can do this and, yeah. and other people aren't? And I think that there are lots of technical reasons for that. There are things that they told me that I'm probably less qualified to speak about with like high-frequency ventilation and the way that they keep a very tight monitor on um, glucose and do a lot of lab. They take a lot of labs. But I think that the thing that really spoke to me and, and I found mind-blowing was that they really believe that it's attitude and culture that mm-hmm. is a big driver of their success, that they, they, they believe that treatment for 22-week babies can be successful, and so they proceed in that way, and that that has been just as, just as important as their sort of clinical management. And in some ways, just as controversial as Maria Pelagoria Papadopoulos yeah. intubating a 36-weeker. Yeah. yeah, that real pushing of the envelope, which and some people many find. Many other neonatologists say they're crazy. Yep. Uh, yep. We, we don't do that here. We don't want to do that. 22-weekers yep. can't survive. Yeah. Although my sense is the tide is turning, and people are starting to accept that uh, the yeah. Iowa results are generalizable, and yeah. the borderline of viability is starting to shift. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem that way. Did you get to talk to the people who were doing the artificial placenta work? I talked to them one time, and then they didn't want to talk anymore. So I don't know if that was something about me or something about just media coverage in general. Probably Mm -hmm. doesn't always doesn't always cover artificial placenta technology and artificial technology in the most calm and deliberative way. It's a nice so way of I did. I did talk. I did talk to Dr. Dysart um, at Chop, who sort of took me through some of their research, and that was fascinating. And I, I do find a lot of echoes between the way that the, the incubator, the invention of the incubator, was greeted to the way the invention of or the development of artificial womb technology is greeted. It makes people clearly inspire some anxiety. Mm-hmm. So knowing what you know now, would, do you think your way of being a parent of a baby in the NICU would be different today than it was? I would be much calmer. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Because you'd understand more? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because now I understand, now I understand that, that I knew all the time that we were lucky, yeah. but now I truly understand how lucky we were to have made it to the point that we made it. I got two steroid shots. I, I know now in my bones that premature babies do well. I also know that even when premature babies have challenges, that families do adapt. Yeah. And that was something that I had very little understanding of at the time. Okay. When someone tells you something like, well, your baby has a 50% chance of being disabled, what I heard was um, what I imagined was not... I think what the reality is. And so now I would have a much better handle on that. Say a little more about that. Uh, Mira would be classified as having a disability. Right. 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 Mira would be classified as having a disability and it's, you know, it's something that that, you know, we we need therapies for, but it's, you know, it's not It's not what I, yes. And I know some people, some people have a much harder road and I would never want to speak for their experience. But I do think that generally speaking, what's important is that you, that you are able to access the care that you need. 
and the therapies that you need because families can really adapt to getting their children what they need. And I was thinking the other day about, you know, would I want her to be different? Could I wish away her? Do I wish away her challenges? I don't want her to have asthma. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want her to struggle with these things, but I, I don't want her to be different. I don't wish away anything about her. That was something that I learned. Do you have any advice for health professionals in the NICU, doctors or nurses? Uh... I think generally speaking, parents are very, very grateful to clinicians in the NICU because we know that you have saved our babies' lives, and so we are intensely grateful for that. I think just to remember that the words that you use can sometimes stay with us for years and years and years. And so, you know, what is your Tuesday afternoon is the most intense moment of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so when you say something like a 50% chance of disability, it would be very helpful either to not say that at all or, (laughs) especially when we're speaking hypothetically, or to really say something like, you know, let let me tell you about outcomes for what a lot of premature, a lot of premature babies have motor delays. This is what that looks like. This is how their families handle it. And that would give you something to imagine and to hold on to that you know you can probably handle that. Whereas if you just say, she's, you know, she has a 50% chance of being disabled, your mind goes to these places where it's like, what are we going to do? How, you know, will she, will she, you know, will she have capacity for human relationship, you know? And that's not at all what he meant, but I didn't know that. Yeah. Maybe even just a little follow-up conversation. Right. When I say disability, what do you think about? Right. Tell me your biggest fears. Right. And let's talk about them. Right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for dropping by to, to the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center to tell us about your wonderful new book, Early, An Intimate History of Premature Birth, and what it teaches us about being human. It's available on Amazon, right? It is. And in bookstores everywhere. It is a great read, both for parents and families who have a baby in the NICU, but also for doctors and nurses, many of whom I suspect do not know the history that you so beautifully uh, explore and describe in this book. Thank you so much for having me. It has been an honor to be here and talk to you. Thank you for listening. I'm John Lantos, director of the Children's Mercy Hospital Bioethics Center in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is the Pediatric Ethics Podcast.